Hello and welcome to the Shepherd Walwyn podcast series. My name is Jonathan Brown. Shepherd Walwyn is a campaigning book publisher based in London, England. Our purpose is to uncover and promote new ideas to society's oldest problems. And whilst our specialty is ethical economics, something Anthony Werner, our driving force for over 40 years, has pioneered, we have branched out over the years to other related areas such as the environment and the lives and works of society's change agents. These podcasts promote ideas we're convinced can actually help us build a better society for all of us. So have a listen and be sure to share with your friends if you like them, but also tell us what you think. These are debates we all need to be part of. So without further ado, let's get into the interview. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Shepherd Walwyn podcast. Uh, My guest today is Tom Burgess author of From Here to Prosperity, an agenda for progressive prosperity based on an inequality-busting strategy of the income of me, wealth for we. Um, Tom is the executive director for the Progressive Policy Unit, um, and he also runs the Real Agenda Network, which is a network of podcasts promoting and campaigning for political change. And before that, he was a CEO of an international communications agency, and he's been a broadcaster, journalist, and lecturer. He's been politically active all of life and just asking difficult questions of anyone in authority, including his teachers at school, which we may get into. Um, perhaps the reason for that could be that his dad was also an economist causing a stir and he wrote a book called Public Revenue Without Taxation. Tom, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Yes, good to be here. Um, so, Tom, um, just to, before we get into the book, I just wonder if you can give us a, I gave a, the guys a, a, just a brief overview of your career. I just wondered how you came to to get with the experiences that you had and the thoughts that you had as to how you came to write the the book from here to prosperity. Well, I, I was always interested in you know a sense of fairness and and uh, an interest in social justice, and would never really accept that we had to sort of live with it. And then, quite a young, well, actually, from the age of sixteen, was involved with um, got involved in sort of political campaigning, and. Then through to this, uh, when I was a student and I was student union president and I was involved in the National Union of Students as well. Uh, so I was had always had an interest in politics and always wanted to be involved in what could be done and put forward ideas and solve the problems. I didn't want to really sit around talking about it um, all the time, which I felt quite a lot of people did like doing. And I really wanted to make a difference. So, but then I have, so in various stages of my life, I've been involved with politics. Obviously, well, I had a young family and I started a business. So that sort of took me away from that. My focus was on the, the family and business. And the, But I was also, before that, I did, um, I was a founder member of the Social Democratic Party in the early 80s and stood for election for the SDP and was on the regional steering group and, and, and activities like that. And later on, I published a political newspaper. So I've always been involved in, in political activity at some time during my life. But it was after I had the, the, the finished working for the, uh, the communications company that I founded that I thought it was time to do something else. And, uh, and so it evolved that I wanted to get my ideas down. Um, but as I said, I didn't really want to write another analysis of the problem about how bad things were uh, and that they're getting worse. I wanted practical answers. So that was really my viewpoint. And I felt I certainly had experience in the political field. I had experience in business. 
and obviously life generally. So uh, I was in a reasonable position to to put that down. And so that's exactly what I did. And I was inspired by my late father, who was an economist. I don't necessarily count myself as an economist. I did actually study as part of my degree course, but he was an economist and he wrote a number of papers throughout his life and did a lot of research and culminated in the book um, published by Shepard Baldwin called from with public revenue without taxation. So that was um, seemed like a great idea. Uh, it seemed simple and it was a great goal and it was entirely practical. But I felt the needed there were some additional answers that were required if we were to achieve this goal of public revenue without taxation and to come up with an agenda of some very simple uh, practical things that could be done uh, to make really significant change. And uh, that's what I had in the book. So, so if you if you look at your background, then I'm interested to know because so you've got the you've got a, a background steeped in political activism, um, involved with the you know, National Union of Students, one of the founder members of the SDP, um, and then you run a successful um, communications agency. Um, there's a lots of people having had that level of success in that field who then move into politics and stand for you know, stand for a, a member, being a member of parliament. And they're very successful at that because they are skilled communicators. So what was it that prompted you not to take that path then? In order to become a member of parliament, and I did think about it at several stages in my career, uh, and would have actually, you know, sort of liked to do it. I couldn't find a political party that reflected my views completely. I mean, I did feel the SDP, but that didn't really last long enough to do that. And it was also at a time when I was just having a, uh, yeah, you know, I just hadn't had the business that long and had a young family. So though I was involved, you know, I wasn't going to switch careers and I actually quite enjoyed the business career at the time, but it would have been very interesting. And then later on, you know, you just feel, yeah, there's still no political party that that re- reflects my, uh, my views or is strong enough. You know, what's fr- the frustrating thing is that there's a lot of well-meaning politicians, but they're not... S- they, you know, they lack the leadership to stand up to do what is right for people over party. You know, they're always talking about the party and it doesn't matter which side you're on or in the middle or wherever you are, it's getting the party into power. No, we want these things fixed and we don't, and they can be fixed. And it's not just about papering over the cracks. It's very easy to paper over the cracks and just create another benefit or another initiative that doesn't actually solve the problem. And, you know, we need to solve the problems, but the vested interests, you know, prevent, and, and a lot of other things, prevent politics and indeed the electorate, you know, to get the political will to make real change happen, stand up and say, we will do this hmm. and take everybody with them. They're too frightened. They think, oh, if we say we're going to tax the wealthy more, all the wealthy are going to leave the country. They're not going to leave the country. You know, you've got to stand up and do it. And that, explain to everyone that comes back to communications explain to everybody what the real benefit is how they, we will all benefit if we bring these changes in um and 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 so so that's part of it so i think there are other things you can do than just stand for a member of parliament but i think that would have been that would have been very interesting to do but that was a quite a big second career so the book then is is you're talking about income for me and wealth for we so i wanted to find a sort of underlying strategy and plan um, that could change things. And then actually another thing that inspired me 
was I when I was in California, which is where I wrote most of the books. I wrote it for the UK and the US. I was able to attend lectures by uh, Professor Robert Reich at the University of California in Berkeley. And he'd been a very knowledgeable guy. And he'd been Minister of Labor for the um, uh, Secretary of State for Labor in the Clinton administration. And he did a series of lectures called Wealth and Poverty. And it was really interesting the way he tied the two together and how, you know, it just reinforced some of my views that these were actually connected. So the book, the idea of the income for me and wealth for we is that we keep all the income that we earn. And then the, the wealth for we is that we share the wealth that we all help create because what people think is, oh no, he's very wealthy. He's a self-made man. And... And, um, and that's, you know, that's not the case. And uh, one of my, uh, it's now become a friend, Julian Richer, Richer Sounds, who I've interviewed on the Real Agenda um, podcast a few times. You know, he's somebody that realizes that, you know, that, I, no, he didn't make it all. He can't have, get staff unless they're educated. He can't run his trucks on the road unless there's roads. You know, we, the rest of us are helping the wealth generated uh, by companies and corporations. We're all contributing to it, whether you work there, whether you're a customer, whether you're a taxpayer. And there seems to be a mismatch in thinking, no, it's them or the shareholders that created it. We all create the wealth. And therefore, it's very appropriate that we find ways that that wealth can be shared more equitably. I'm not saying we take it all away from everybody or we don't encourage people that they feel they're going to make a better life for themselves by working harder or by doing, you know, good work and, and helping people and building businesses. Uh, we don't say, you know, I'm not saying you won't do that at all, but we've got a crazy system that piles it all up at one end to, to no advantage. And I mean, Julian Richard, for an example, has turned his company over most of it to, to the being shareholdings to to the workforce, and I think that that's that's good. It just should happen more often, and there's a lot more other things that can be done. So that's the central theme. Fantastic. Well, let's get into some of the some of the the key ideas that would support that philosophy. Okay. You've just done a, a really quite a, a passionate um, explanation of the of the first ideas. I just wonder if you can give us a little bit more detail as to as to what else is in the in the book and and how your ideas are supported. What I tried to lay out was that such change is possible and it could be achieved if we had the political will. So our challenge is to get the political will. There is a lot of, um, and we need to have the change. I mean, even in just on the tax side, there's been numerous reports um, about how we could reform the tax system in the UK and for that matter, the US, but we'll talk primarily about the UK here. And I'm particularly in the US, so there's so many people involved in tax calculation and avoidance and minimization, or however you want to put it. You know, it's an industry in itself. But there's been lots of reports, I mean, that, you know, have recommended various things, and very little has happened. You know, and because politicians think, well, there's no votes in tax. You know, why haven't we changed the council tax? It's out of date. You know, it's, it's, it, it makes it life really difficult for people, you know, who, you know, can hardly afford their rent. And, you know, councils have been spending lots of money on trying to reclaim this from people that have no money. So 
the idea that, you know, so the problem, there's loads of proposals out there and some good work by, you know, the New Economics Foundation and the Institute of Public Policy Research and various other, and Equality Trust and various other organisations. And still, we don't get any, any change. And the only proposals, as we've just had recently, you know, social care, we need to fund that. We create a, we, we increase taxes on income or related to income. And that was not going to get us anywhere. It's going to make matters worse. So I'm trying to point out that these things are going to make matters worse. And the, the way to make matters better is to get it at source. So I, in summation, I had five proposals, which we can talk about if you like, in more detail later on. But to put it very simply, and these supported the idea of, you know, this was the income for me, wealth for we. That one thing that's very important is that we raise the minimum wage to a real living wage. And that will benefit, for instance, 5 million people in the UK. We reduce and we indeed abolish income taxes for lower earners. That would benefit 25 million people. Now, why is it that the government says, you know, we yes, we'll abolish income taxes for the, this group of people, and we'll have it. We might have, um, you know, increase the rates on those above a certain level, so it's it's a smooth. You know, it's not just increasing the threshold to 32, because that would benefit even others. You know, the, those on higher uh, incomes. So that could that could benefit 25 million people, which would be a huge difference. But it only amounts to you know, and this is when we I did the calculations to about 55 billion of a sort of nearly, you know, government budget of nearly 1,000 billion and more, particularly with the cost of the pandemic. Um, so that would make such a huge difference. So that 55 billion could easily be made up by a small tax on wealth of those with, who have over a million in assets apart from their, their own um, their, their primary residence. And you think, well, you know, I, I certainly think, well, why don't we do that? It's straightforward. So that was two things. The other thing is to have a, a tax on personal assets above a certain threshold or other than primary residence. You know, and this, for instance, could provide the fu funding for health and education, um, as an example, if because it's easier to persuade people that the increase in taxes is a particular thing, which they're now doing with social care. Uh, although the governments in the UK have always shied away from sort of saying, oh, this tax goes for that and this tax goes for that. But those personal assets could raise, you know, a significant amount too and cause no hardship. And it's not difficult to calculate. One Sometimes people say, well, that's difficult to calculate. No, it isn't. And it's been shown to be the case. And another thing, so, and then I... Item three, are we okay just going through this list? Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah, okay. So the, the third point, sorry, the fourth point, is the reform of council tax and business rates and replacement with a land value tax. Now, there's huge benefits here. This is a, an idea that's been around for well over 100 years. It was actively supported by Sir Winston Churchill, amongst many other people, um, over the years. And it was once going to go through to, to law. But because of <clears throat> actually mainly because of wars and other distractions, never got there. And it's now been kept back. And as you may recall, 
um, the, you know, at one time, in some time, you know, whenever, I can't remember when the poll tax and things came in, I tried to change it, but the rates as it was then, the equivalent of council tax was only paid by homeowners. Whereas now this is paid by everybody, the council tax. And so therefore it's, you know, severely affects those on low incomes. And a lot of the reason for homelessness or people in that, and that's not just rough sleepers, that's people who are in, you know, overcrowded accommodation or the wrong accommodation or temporary accommodation is because they can't, one, they can't afford their rent and two, they can't afford the council tax. And we can go into reasons why they can't afford it, you know, because of poor benefit systems are overtaxed in other areas, they can't get jobs, we know that. So if we, that would make a huge difference. And the land value tax, many others have written at great length on that. And indeed the, the idea behind my dad's book was that this actually a land value tax or similar could actually cover all taxes. But there would be numerous benefits from that. And we can explain more about how that would work, you know, lead to more affordable housing. It provide funds for infrastructure development, which benefits everybody, benefits business, it benefits, you know, families, because you could relate it directly to infrastructure development. And the fifth idea that we had, so I'm not claiming land value tax is my idea or anything. I'm just saying these are five ideas. Although the fifth one, I talk about the reform of corporation tax. And I'm proposing as an incentive called social offsetting. Now, to me, corporation tax seems a perfectly reasonable tax because it puts a tax on the profits, which, as we've indicated before, are created by us all. So the company, but, you know, the company <clears throat> benefits from not just from its workforce, but its customers and creates wealth and profits because of that. And also the facilities and its location and so on. So the fact that it makes a profit would make sense. It's very reasonable that some of that goes back to those that helped created it, you know, and it shouldn't just be the shareholders, it should be the immediate stakeholders, but a wider stakeholder base as well, the local community, for example. Now to make one of the ways of making that happen more is not by reducing it, by increasing the corporation tax but also to set a reasonable threshold because we don't want to squeeze small businesses who are finding it difficult to make a profit or, you know, struggling along in difficult times. We want to have a reasonable threshold. But if we had what I call social offsetting, so that actually companies would pay less corporation tax if they were more socially responsible. So for instance, if they provided, you know, they paid a living wage, if they provided, uh, you know, particular welfare benefits, training, they didn't pollute, you know, they didn't, they used renewables and all these other positive things for our economy, which would actually reduce government expenditure because if they paid people decent wages, there would be less people, not everybody, that would need welfare benefit. And as you know, you may appreciate, and the listeners appreciate, effectively we have a system of corporate welfare. So people, Companies do not pay their staff enough, so they then have to claim from the government, the taxpayer. So effectively, the taxpayer is propping up, not necessarily propping up, but contributing to the profits of corporations, which is then shared amongst the shareholders. And once again, I don't have a problem with the capitalist, well, I have a problem with the capitalist system, but not in the sense that I want it replaced. I think we need to do some adjustments. And I think the actual 
system and the profit motive is a really good one. And it certainly motivated me when I was running the business, particularly when I wasn't making any profits. But um, it's, you know, I think it's good, but it needs to be kept within sensible. So those are the five um, key policy points, which, you know, in my humble opinion, would not be difficult or complicated to um, put into action. No, we know, you know, we know some people might make comment about them, but there's an answer to most things. Yeah. So who is your ideal reader for the book? Well, that, that, that's always a good point, because I think it's also it's people that are politically interested uh, enough to sort of read the book. And again, I say, ah, you know, something can be done. You know, so as I've indicated, it's not an analysis. Some people, and you know, that's what they like doing. They like reading books and they like reading, say, history or they like reading political analysis. But, it, it, you know, it, we need to have a talk about answers. And, you know, sometimes you talk to some very learned academics and I've done this and they say, okay, you know, so what are we going to do about it? And they don't know, you know, mm. they haven't really thought that thing through. I mean, that's fair enough. Someone else can think about it, but you know, I'm not decrying their work um, because sometimes they rarely put their finger on it very well. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, and highlighted the key issues. And, and one of them I think of is the, uh, the Spirit Level by Richard Wilkinson and, and Kate Pickett, you know, which clearly correlated bad social outcomes with the, you know, high level of inequality. And yeah. so, you, you know, it just proves the point. So it would be obviously people that have got an interest in political change, but I would like to think that, you know, various politicians who don't have a lot of time, but I can always send them a summary, um, would consider, consider those... Um, some of the ideas in there uh, and uh, and you know I would like to think a wide audience but you've got to package it in a way that that it will reach a wider audience yeah I was going to get so that's and, and what do you hope readers will get from from your book well I would like to think that they would get the belief that they can actually it, the, it can change. You know, I was reading an article the other day, I think it was about the public school system, but it's like, it, it's, it's suggested that the sort of Boris's and David Cameron's who went through this system, you know, they may can be concerned about social injustice, but um, they think it's part of the fabric of society. And, pe you know, and it's not just them. People think, well, that's the way of the world. And it needn't be, is what I'm trying to get over. And it doesn't need complicated, um, you know, long, complicated answers, really. I think they're fairly straightforward. And, you know, any one of these would make a big difference. But, you know, why, for instance, doesn't uh, the government set a higher minimum wage? It's just, you know, a minimum wage is based on how much you need to live off at a basic level. Mm. Current government minimum wage is not living wage, as they call it, is not a living wage. It's not based on what you need to live off. And there was some good work done by my fr good friend, the late Reverend Paul Nicholson back in the 90s, when he did the first research into what actually people needed to live off. And that eventually became through to becoming the living wage, the, the real living wage and the Living Wage Foundation, uh, who continually promote companies to change that and for instance things like that have shown that productivity increases people are paid better not just a lot of money but paid better they perform better 
and if they're you know looked after and things they perform better so you know that's what you hope you will say actually why don't we do that mm. what's stopping us you know and, and and reading reading your book that's exactly um what i thought like your numbers on um getting rid of income tax for the for, for people on av- on the average wage which i actually was whilst i knew it I think it's like what twenty six thousand, thirty two thousand dollars um, for the for the average wage in the UK. Is you could actually get rid of income tax for everybody on the average wage, um, and you would hardly yeah. notice in terms of revenue. And it would be very easy to make it up. And yeah. not only would you be able to make it up, but actually you'd save a lot of money in benefits and stuff and tax credits because you wouldn't need to give those out because the people wouldn't need them because they would have kept their you know their thirty two thousand and and not only that people on lower incomes spend their money. Um, yeah. Whereas people on higher incomes don't tend to, or if they do, they move it away from the country, in which case then some one person prospers, but but nobody else does. So there's no there's no we when I get paid a lot more money. No, that that that's that's absolutely right. You know, it, it, I think the figure I use was 32,000 because that was the tax threshold. And I could you see that, um, we know, that was a, where the level changed at the time and and also you know but the majority we think people are spread uh, you know a lot of people are above that but actually 80 percent of people are 32,000 and below mm. and you know on my calculations uh, they uh, as you said it w- it's not a huge amount of of the the nation's budget but just imagine if people had you know 15 percent 10 15 percent extra or 20 percent depending on you know their current situation what difference it would make yeah yeah 100 so so just thinking about um when you were writing the book then what was one of the most surprising things that you learned in writing the book <laughs> i suppose the fact that you know it that sometimes i think that people didn't get the connection between sort of wealth and poverty uh and also what you know i cal- i i felt there was a better way so i think there's you know a surprising thing really was that we hadn't done this before uh, and uh, you know an unsurprising thing was just a lot of information had been put forward to make some of these changes but hadn't been acted on and we know how you know the we know how to solve a lot of these problems i'm not using it not in the book but i use an example of of uh, solving homelessness and, and uh, another um, the guys I met, Matt, at, um, at uh, Crisis, the, the housing campaigning group, he he wrote the report to solve homelessness. And I think, and the figures approximately, it would cost $19 billion to solve homelessness. And obviously it would improve lives for many thousands of people. And But you would get a, like a 50-plus billion return because these people would be in work, they'd be buying houses, they'd be spending money. Um, or you know, and so on, and yet we still don't do it. So you know, this was a comprehensive report. Why doesn't the government pick it up and say, "Hey, this is this is great. Let's do it. Tell us what to do." Mm. And and the Institute of Public Policy Research did a report, Prosperity and Justice, uh, a few years ago. It was more or less a complete agenda uh, of of everything that could be possibly be done to to bring greater economic and social justice. Um, and the Archbishop of Canterbury was on the board, and other learned people too, um, and, uh, and you know, experienced people were on the board of that. And uh, and yet, it's still, 
you know, didn't really get anywhere. Mm. But when you get involved in politics, you realize how sometimes why these things don't get anywhere because it's all about keeping the other party out or it's about winning the game. And it doesn't mean to say that a lot of politicians are not without, you know, they're very concerned and that's why they go into politics. But I'm also involved with an organisation called Compassion in Politics and that's what they're trying to do to get for politicians to decide, to realise, you know, the importance of compassion and how the policies they put forward are not affecting badly the next generation or disadvantaged groups, which a lot of legislation can do. And so to try to get this over, so you realise that the politicians, as I said, you know, they just need to think, hey, this can be done, and I'm going to stand up and and uh, and uh, and say that, but they don't. And you know, so uh, I think uh, that's uh, surprising. Yeah, and do you know what, Tom? And I think that's that's that for me. When I when I think about what I got from the book, was this this sense of of possibility, and that there isn't the issue isn't we don't have a solution to this problem. There isn't a way out of this. This is we need to agree that this is this is going to get done. And a lot of people who who wouldn't normally be that affected, are in, no, sorry, a lot of people who wouldn't normally be involved in the political process benefit greatly. And I guess that's that's the challenge that we need to to wrap our heads around is how can we then change that system because the ideas are the ideas are terrific. Um, so, yeah. um, Tom, just uh, before we go, um, is there anything you would like to to say to the listeners? Oh well, there's lots of things I'd like to say. I was just actually going to tell a story that that. Um, because the, the one of my f- friends from student days and actually nominated him for um, president of the National Union of Students and he won, is a guy called Charles Clark, who was a Labour politician in the Tony Blair government. And Charles, a nice guy that he is, um, you know, he also wrote a book like The Too Difficult Box. What is it called? Something like that, you know, The Too Difficult Box, because all these policies were just too difficult to solve. Not necessarily the ones I'm talking about. But he all, but and also when I asked him if he'd write a review of my book, he had to read through. He had to read through the synopsis. No, no, Tom, I don't think I can really. <laughs> and uh, I think he'd join the establishment, you see. And therefore, I think that they sometimes politicians think these things cannot be done, you know. And I, you know, I do support the fact that, you know, they, they are well meaning and also contact your politician, you know, in terms of action, and this, you know, I'm talking about members of parliament for that matter, local councillors as well. They'd like to know what the, um, the, the the voters are thinking and push them. And, uh, you know, because though it's difficult sometimes to get through to them, it's very important to, to push them or join a, a relevant group that, um, you know, is going to push on behalf of the issues that we consider important because we've got to change this. And, you know, it's like the Brexit vote, you know, was that about leaving the European Union? Oh, a bit of it was, but, you know, why did it go the way it is? Because everybody was um, fed up with things not happening and not being looked after or not followed through and not being taken care of in the sense that, you know, we pay the taxes, we elected government to, to take care of certain things that we can't do ourselves, you know, security and health and that sort of thing. So I, the, my, in my message is, it can be done and you know it may even come down that needs to be some form of revolution or civil disobedience just to get the message through but 
you know, it's it, we can bring changes and it's not complicated. Brilliant. Tom, on that note, let's leave it for now. And if you promise to come back and talk in more detail about your ideas. Thank you very much. That's great. Lovely talking Thanks, to Tom. you. Thank you for listening to the Shepherd Walwyn podcast. To explore these ideas further, be sure to visit our website, www.shepherdwalwyn.com and join our mailing list for news and special offers. Check out our authors and buy the books to learn more. And you can also find us on social media. Links are also on the website. And if you like the podcast, please head over to iTunes or Spotify to give us a review. It's surprisingly helpful in getting the ideas out there. So until next time, keep reading. <laughs>